Thank you so much again, Andrew. Thank you so much again, our musicians and our singers. Above all, we praise God and we praise God for bringing you to join us in our services as we listen to His Word. And so today, we pick up the story of God's salvation of us, redemption of us from the book of Exodus, an introduction, an overview to the end. We begin by exploring the dying wishes of dying children. And you may have heard of this, different ways, different times. So I read for you the story of 11-year-old Christina Donnelly. And she, her dying wish, she had a favourite programme, favourite um, Muppeteers, the Muppets. And so, very sadly, Christina was diagnosed with a fatal case of Ewing's sarcoma, a bone cancer. And she so wanted to she so wanted to be part of the set of the Muppets for their, for their show and made a request. And she was granted. And she didn't just want to visit the set of the Muppets in the movie Muppets from Space. She wanted to be part of it. And the production team and the director gave in to her wish and gave in to her wish. And so what was she allowed to do? Rather than appear as herself, Christina accepted the unbelievable offer to operate a Muppet and she controlled Bear the Sheep, a puppet made just for the movie. And after she had the wish granted, very sadly, she died. But I think satisfied that her great wish, her great dream, her great hope to be part, to be whole, the Muppets in real life, she died in November 1999, shortly after the release of The Muppets from Space. The dying wishes of dying people, the dying wishes of living people, the dying wishes of dying children. If I only had the chance to meet Iron Man or Superman or James Bond, for one day, for once in your life, you get to be, you get to be, the Muppets. For one day, behold, my dream, my idol, my life is complete. So I tried to Google the meaning of the word behold, for I think it really captures what is on view here in Exodus 19. And the English words, the synonyms ran along these lines. Behold could mean appreciate. You finally caught the meaning of this, right? You comprehend this. You get this. You grasp the significance of this. You recognize this. You finally registered this. Behold, you registered this. Behold, you recognize this. Behold, you understand this. Known or unknown to us, the one person we should all be dying to behold, to grasp, to recognize, to register, must be the person of God. The one person we get to look like and be like must be God, our Creator, and as we read here, our Redeemer. So the story so far in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 1, we meet Israel. And Israel by now was in slavery to Pharaoh, slavery for 400 years. And then in chapter 2, we meet Moses, the birth of Moses, the would-be deliverer of his people. Then in Exodus 3, we, we encounter this. Moses meets God and he, his, his encounter with God is where he gets the commandment and the instructions. He will lead his people out of slavery, not by his own compassion, not by his own wisdom, not by his own strength, but by God's decree, by God's power. And then from Exodus 5 to 7, he sent Moses and Aaron, are sent by God, whose name is Yahweh to Israel, sent by God to tell Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the universe, in the world at that time, and simply to tell him, let my people go. This God of the Hebrews, this God of the Jews, says to the most powerful person, the most powerful king of that time, let my people go. And so Pharaoh meets God 
And what does Pharaoh say to this God of the God of the slaves, God of the weak? Who is your God that I should listen to him? So thus says Pharaoh becomes the counterword to thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord. And from chapter 7 to 12, God sends 10 plagues into Egypt's life to send a signal to Egypt, to send a signal to Pharaoh that the God of Israel is not a tiny, puny God. He is the true and the living God. Unlike all the fake gods of Egypt that has made Pharaoh and Egypt the most powerful nation at that time. And finally, after the 10 plague, where the firstborn of Egypt is struck down, which includes Pharaoh's son, God, Pharaoh lets the people go. And then Exodus 13 to 15. And from Exodus 15 to 18, the people journey in the wilderness. And now they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. That, in a nutshell, is the story of Exodus up to this point. And so we pick it up by reading again what was read out to us. Chapter 19. It says, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. And the scholars estimate this is about seven, eight weeks after that event. And where are they? they? They are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. But here are the words which are important. The words of God, Yahweh, to Moses for his people. And what are the words? The first slide comes on. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He goes on. Therefore the Lord called him... Oh, sorry. Next slide. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So when you read this portion, it's important to realize that God summons Moses to go up to the mountain. And if you read the entire book, and we encourage you to read the entire book in preparation for this. Whether you're following this us on site or following us virtually, it's a blessing to read God's Word. You would find that Moses is called to go up to the mountain seven times. Three times here in Exodus 19. And the three times here, each ascent, each climb, each pilgrimage up, my, up Mount Sinai, has a specific meaning. So let's explore the first meaning from the first ascent. And it runs roughly along these lines. In verse 4, the, the speech of Yahweh to Moses to give to Israel is, it's a review of what God has done. It's very important to remember. God will say this to his people, remember, remember, because they have short memories, we have short memories. Remembrance and gratitude is very much a part of our spiritual lives. We forget to remember at great peril to our hearts, to our homes, to everything around us. We forget to remember God at great peril to our existence, our present and our future. And then the third thing that God will say to him is what he, promises, what he promises them after he makes the demands and desires of his people. So let's take a look at them in turn. So Moses is called to go up to this mountain to do what? The first thing that strikes him is God saying to him, you have seen what I did to Egypt. You have seen what I did to Egypt. What is it that he did to Egypt? Egypt of all, you've seen that I'm God of all the nations, but you've seen how I've dealt with Egypt, the most powerful nation. 
So Yahweh is actually saying this. Yahweh is not a local or small fry idol. Like the frogs or the snakes, whatever they use to make idols to grant them fertility of the womb, prosperity of their hands, and security in their military and political might. Yahweh, the God of the slaves, the God of losers, is not a loser God. So the first statement, you have seen what I've done to Egypt, what I did to Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler at that time, human ruler, the most powerful human enemy, the first message is, Behold, Yahweh is sovereign. Behold the sovereignty of Yahweh, who has all the nations in his hands, who has the most powerful nation in his hands, and hears the tender cries of his people living under human oppression. He is Lord of the grand plans of the superpower. He is the Lord of the United Nations, and yet he is Lord of the deep cries of the oppressed people of this world. So firstly, behold the sovereignty of Yahweh. Then behold the victory of Yahweh. The superpower of Egypt at that time became completely helpless when Yahweh came to help his people. And how did he make the number one superpower helpless when he, God, came to help his helpless people? All he did was to overturn the very high defense budget of Egypt that gave them state-of-the-art weapons, state-of-the-art horses and chariots, which no other nation had. And all he did to render powerless Pharaoh and his horses and his chariots was simply to unleash waters. God has zero defense budget against the number one nation with the largest defense budget. And so the second thing that they encounter, behold, not just his sovereignty, but his victory. And then through their journey through the wilderness after they have been delivered, what is it they behold God, they grasp of God, they catch of God? It's the penny finally drops. They behold God as provider. We are dying of thirst here. Did you lead us out here only to die? They say to Moses. Actually, it's a message they send to God through Moses. And so the number one response of God's people to the wilderness, chapter 15 to 18, was one of grumbling. Number one response to a God who had delivered them from 430 years of slavery was to grumble all the way. And what would God show them from Exodus 16 to 19? That God is not simply their deliverer, their mighty deliverer, that they are, they are to behold His sovereignty and His victory over all the nations and over all, the most powerful nation, but God is good shepherd. God is tender provider of manna and quill. They will not die of thirst. They will not die of hunger. They will die because of rebellion against God. Behold God your provider. Behold God your protector. And Israel will face in chapter 18 enemies that will come to surround her. We thought we got rid of the worst enemy, but there will be enemies en route to the promised land, en route to Mount Sinai, on the verge of the promised land. And Yahweh proves again, He is that deliverer. But the words and the terms I wanted to share with you of gravity, instead of just Israel beholding the sovereignty, the victory, the mightiness of God, is actually how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Scholars differ as to why an eagle is chosen, but maybe an eagle is chosen because if you ever watch Nat Joe Discovery Channel, you see how birds bring their infants to maturity. They watch them all the time against predator until they can find their wings. They are mature and grown up enough. But before then, figuratively, carried on eagle's wings, protected by the mother's wings. And so this is a picture of not just sovereignty, not just victory, not just the mightiness of God, but the intimacy of God. 
the tenderness of God. And if we don't get a message how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself, the real purpose of God redeeming His people, redemption is not an end in itself. Redemption is not safe from Pharaoh, safe from oppression, safe from the oppression of human wisdom and human empires. The great goal of redemption is relationship with God. It's not just safe from, but safe for. What is Israel redeemed for? Redeemed for our relationship with God. And it's so important for us to realize that we who find the fulfillment of this redemption purposes of God, that we are redeemed for our relationship with God. We're not redeemed mainly for mission. We're not redeemed mainly for ministry. We're not redeemed mainly for, for works. We're not redeemed for... So stories told of this Bible college student. And I, write this, I read this years and years ago in Discipleship Magazine. We used to be put up by the Navigators, a Christian group that used to work in campuses all around the world. And this is who came from America. And here he was studying in Bible college. And he came back from a full day of lectures, came back to his place, to his home, right, on site, on campus. His young wife with his young child, and she was obviously trying to cook a meal while trying to look after the baby. And it's not, it's not an easy thing to do, to, to cook a meal while look, looking after the baby. And as she heard him walk in through the door, she called out to him, you know, let's say his name is Tim. Tim, can you come and just help me uh, with minding the baby? And he said, just off the top of the head, full day of lectures, full day of tutorials, no, I, I just want to spend time uh, reading my lecture notes and just to meditate and pray. I mean, the whole goal of him studying in Bible college was for him to have a relationship, a deeper and deeper relationship with God, with Jesus, and then through that relationship, a deeper and deeper relationship with his wife and with his child. We're not redeemed for ministry. We're not redeemed for mission. We are redeemed. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now Israel is going to know more and more God's revelation of His character. What is, it that, what is it about Yahweh, the true and the living God, that Israel must not just grasp or in singlets catch? Right? And there's a, hook, a, a dialect phrase, catch no ball means this is too incomprehensible for me. She has to catch this ball. She has to catch this spiritual nugget. The penny has to drop for Israel. And so as Moses ascends the mountain, here is the first message. This is what God has done. And because this is what has done, redeem you for relationship with Him. This is what He demands. As you know the person of God, you know the character of God, and you know what He demands of you and desires of you for a life that is pleasing to Him. And what is it that He demands? He demands... That, you, that Israel obeys his voice and keeps his covenant. Notice there is a word, a conditional word, if you obey my voice and you keep my covenant. And the two things, the two things God demands and desires are two sides of the same coin. Why? Israel would be demanded by God to keep the covenant how, how do I keep this covenant? How do I keep this, fulfill this contract? By obeying the word of God, the voice of God, that will be soon given in Exodus 20, recorded for us in Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments is literally the ten words of God that Israel has to listen to. That the voice of God will be spoken to the ten words of Yahweh that will govern her personal life and her national life and make her to be a kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests who have full access to God and the fullness of life and then given full license to be a witness because they have full access as the priests and the priesthood of God. So the second thing the second significance of this ascent to Mount Sinai of Moses, the first ascent, is what God demands. He demands obedience. 
and obedience is part of her keeping, Israel keeping her covenant with God. Israel's history, Israel's history of obedience is shattered to bits. She fails to keep the ten words that God gives. She will drag her feet with obedience. If her first collective experience and response to Yahweh who delivered her through the Exodus was grumbling, then all the way from Mount Sinai into the Promised Land, her, her next response would not just be grumbling but fumbling, failing, falling short of God's demands and desires in His Word. And so, when do we actually learn in life? One clinical psychologist actually say, we, we learn our most precious lessons. When you learn your most precious lessons, you want to ask each other with, when you're watching this, you're watching this by yourself, ask, when have you learned the most precious lessons in life? Think about it. Think about it. For those who are here, when have you learned the most precious lessons in life? We learn the most precious lessons in life, says this clinical psychologist, usually in our wretchedness. Usually in our sinfulness. We learn about God's benevolence. I'm going to spin that around to Bible lessons, gospel lessons, Christian lessons for us. We usually learn of God's goodness, God's benevolence, through our malevolence, through our sinfulness, through our evilness. We usually learn of the awesomeness of worship through the emptiness of idolatry. We usually learn the beauty of God through the ugliness of our sins and people's sins against us. That's how we usually learn the precious lessons of life. We don't learn by just downloading information. And so I'm going to ask of myself and ask of you, have you, when was your last lesson of obedience? Did you read it in a book? Did you just merely learn it from a devotion? I doubt so. You're probably going through it right now. That obedience to God is often learned in the crucible of suffering in the crucible of disobedience, that everything within you screams. And so God will say to Israel, thou shall have no other gods before me. Israel will be tempted to have every other god before Yahweh. Thou shalt honour your father and mother. Israel will struggle with honouring parents. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and Israel will, will commit adultery. Indeed, marry foreign wives. She would learn the hard way she would learn the benevolence and the goodwill of God through the malevolence of her own heart. She would learn obedience through disobedience. She would learn the awesomeness of worship through the emptiness of idolatry. And I think you and me carry and suffer the same DNA. Don't you think so? What is it they are still dragging your feet to obey? in your life. And this quotation of T.S. Eliot, T.S. Eliot speaks of a woman who went to see a psychiatrist. As this woman went to see the psychiatrist, she says to the psychiatrist, please tell me that there is something wrong with me. The psychiatrist is asking her, what, what, what do you mean by that? Why? So that I don't want you to tell me I'm like that, I'm in this condition because there's something wrong with the world. Because if you tell me I'm like that, I'm in this condition because there's something wrong in the world, I always have the world to blame. Can you please tell me honestly that there's something wrong with me? And good counselling in life, good Christian counselling, good pastoral counselling is risky because by the grace of God, after listening to you personally, after listening to a couple, after listening to a family come for family counselling, I take the responsible risk to tell you what might possibly be wrong with you, with your heart. That's what the gospel is. That's what Israel heard. The first recipients of the good news. You can't be receptive to good news unless you hear the bad news of your heart. 
And that's the important thing for us to realize. And you contrast this. So I was watching, you know, I, I love dogs. And I was pointed to this program, the most amazing dogs. Netflix or YouTube, I don't know. And the name of this dog, right? He, he was rescued from a pound. He was so hyper, I think he was a cross. Uh, the breed was Blue Healer. Blue Healer is a, is a shepherding dog, a working dog. And uh, full of energy. If you keep it at home, it would, you would drive the dog mad and the dog would drive you mad. If you keep it there sedentary and not doing it and just want to walk it for 10 minutes a day just to do its business out there, that's not a dog you want to keep. And so it landed up in the pound and nobody picked it up. It was headed for extinction. That's what they do in pounds. Just too many dogs which are unwanted. And so um, it was picked up. It was adopted. Adopted by this dog trainer. And um, he saw potential in... <laughs> And he named the dog because the dog was jumpy. <laughs> he named the dog Jumpy, right? Saw potential in this dog and adopted. And Jumpy started to show canine gratitude. Such a willingness to please his, his new owner. Such a willingness to please his new trainer. And he was born for this. Guess what? I think Jumpy holds the record for a dog that can obey. Guess how many commands he can obey? He was trained to be a movie stunt dog. He's one of the most, most uh, sought-after stunt dogs in that documentary that I watched. Jumpy could do 85 commands. And the stunning one <laughs> that he did, right, when I was watching this uh, documentary, was that he put him up on the roof, right, the, the owner, and Jumpy was on the roof, and on the roof, he can't see from where he is where his owner is, right? He can't see him. And then the owner just gives command, Jumpy, come. He can't see where his owner is. And he jumps from the roof into nowhere. He jumps straight into his owner trainer's arms. Everything Jumpy does is canine gratitude. It's canine obedience. He just can't stop obeying his dog owner who rescued him from a pound. If only our obedience to God was like that. But we, like Israel, drag our feet. We don't have this jumpy, please show me how to obey you, God. It's please show me why I should obey you, God. And that was the character. So if she grumbled her way in the wilderness, she would fumble her way out of the promised land. Because obeying God's voice and keeping His covenant would be the furthest thing from Israel's heart and mind. And then what God promises, if you keep, if you hear my voice, obey me and keep my covenant, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so we have this. What else do we learn from this passage? It moves on. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for this thing called the third day. What's so great about the third day? For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all His people. The third day is when God will descend to meet His people. And that's why the third day is so important. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, for he shall be stoned or shot. Whether bees or men, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come out to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready. Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. What is this? What is the second ascent about? The second ascent, if the first ascent was God's call for them to be obedient, the second climb, the second ascent, the second pilgrimage of Moses up to the mountain was God's call for them to be holy. That's what they needed to understand. 
that God was a holy God. And his encounter with them, they must understand it's all about encountering some being, the number one being in the world, and this encounter will not be matched in their life. This is what you can say is unique, distinctive, never to be repeated again. God descending to meet His people. And so they had to be, big word, if you want to meet the Holy God, the big Bible word from Old Testament to New Testament is the word consecrated. Consecrated. And consecrated just means set apart to be holy. Set apart to know God. Set apart to serve God. And so very important that Israel gets this right. And so Israel must never think that since they have journeyed all the way, now they prepare themselves, they are ready to meet this God. And God says, no, Moses, please tell them that this whole place, this, this mountain is going to be considered holy because of my presence. You think about it, it's a very strange thing, this second ascent. And what God gives to Moses to say to the people, he says, I will meet you there. And then God says, no entry, no entry, no entry. <laughs> I'll meet you there and everywhere is a roadblock. What kind of rendezvous? Have you ever made an appointment with somebody? Right? I'll meet you there and every road there is a roadblock that says no entry. He says, hey, that sounds very much like living with the pandemic. Have you gone out to a public space? You used to be able to enter a public building, a shopping mall, through all sorts of entrances. But now they've closed it all off. There's only one entry. And it gets a bit frustrating. It gets a bit frustrating. You know why? You should know why. And I know why. Because it's to control your infectivity. It's to control this viral virus. When the Holy God meets His people, is to control the infectivity of sin. Sinners and a holy God have nothing in common. Which tells you that the knowing of God and the worship of God is something God makes possible. You don't, in Malay language here, you don't just suka suka say, I know God and I worship God. There is something that is very forced in Western thinking now, in celebrities, right? Somebody passes away, right? And we hold a funeral and we say, yeah, Michael Jackson, I'm sure you're looking down on us, right? Whoever's passed on, I'm sure you're looking down on us. And uh, you're now with God. And the popular mistaken thinking is all you have to do to get to heaven and to be with God is to die. For when you die, you are with God. You will not find that in the entire scriptures. Death is not your license to know the holy God. Worship is something God will determine. And Israel has to learn this. You touch the things he tells you not to touch and you'll be struck dead. Who do you think I am? God says to his people. Who do you think you are? There is an uncrossable gulf between the holy God and you and me. You don't just saunter up to God. You don't just loiter up to God. You don't just do your devotions on your bed and say, God, it's a holy God. We need to get that right. We need to capture afresh what? The holiness of God. And that leads us to the final passage, final portion of this chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. See? Consecrate, consecrate, consecrate. There is only one prerequisite to approach the Holy God. You've got to consecrate yourself. Lest, lest what happens? The Lord breaks out against them. That phrase just basically means lest God comes out and strikes you dead, kills you. His holiness will strike you dead. 
And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come out to Mount Sinai. For you warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. You say, meet us here. And then you say, no entry, no entry, no entry. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. At this point, Aaron and the priesthood had not been formed. The people could approach God, but as they do so, they are to see this. So Moses went down to the people and he told them, now we can draw the lessons together. The lessons about the three ascents that Moses is called by God to do in 19, chapter 19. The first ascent was God's call to Moses and his people to be obedient. The second ascent was God's call for them to be holy because they are approaching the holy God and to consecrate themselves the third ascent of Moses was for them to know both the beauty, the majesty, the awesomeness of the holy God, yet the danger of presuming on his holiness. The danger of belittling God by belittling his holiness. And that's so important for us to realize. So what dangers? The danger, there are three dangers in Israel's life and our life. The three dangers against God's holiness. The danger of presumption. Did you, I missed that in verse 8. When Moses brought this message down to the elders and the elders to the people, and what, how did the people respond? The people said, we will obey everything God tells us. You would know if you had read it up to that point, there has been a track record of Israel presuming that she would be able to obey God by her own steam, by her own will, by her own commitment. She forgets that everything to do with redemption is graced by God. Unless God graces you to obey, you won't obey. Unless God empowers you to obey, you won't obey. Unless God unblocks your ears, you won't listen. The danger of presumption and the danger of impulse now, Moses has come down and he said, we can all approach the mountain. You mustn't con confuse a moment of impulse. I, I want to know this God. He's so great. To the actual worship of God. Impulse, impulse is different to 24-7 worship. And the 10 words of Yahweh will control the 24-7 worship. How many times have we realized when we go and pray for people, right? Sometimes even for Christians, maybe a little bit nominal in their faith, they're about to undergo an operation. And as they're about to undergo an operation for heart blockages or terminal illness, even an unbeliever is willing to pray a prayer with us to to pray a prayer that I would dedicate my life to God, then they are safe. They are healthy. Three years down the road, they are as far away from God as possible. That's called the danger of impulse. That I will respond to God and I'll respond to God once and for all. Israel would learn the danger of this God is awesome and everything about Him is awesome. Did you realize when you read this? How does God meet them? There is thunder, there is lightning, there is sound, there is light, there is smoke, there is fire. All the things would now signal theophany, a meeting with the unique, true and living and holy God, mighty but intimate, drawing His people to worship Him on His own terms and the danger of curiosity. Moses has come down now and Boy, he's had the privilege of hearing from God all this time. What about us? What about us? Curiosity, knowing God out of curiosity is different to knowing God out of awe. Living in awe of God. 
and that's vitally important. And that's how the chapter ends. Who do you think God is? Who do you think you are? So the tree ascends of Moses and the tree descends of Moses. The tree ascends to listen to God and to bring the message to his people was the first, a call to obey. The second, a call to holiness. And the third, please increasingly know the seriousness of the holy God. The seriousness of holiness, the seriousness of consecration. And so, how do we begin? If you were given a chance, who would you like to meet? Dying wish, child or adult? Who would you like to meet and who would you like to be like? Iron Man, Superman, the Muppets, Luke Skywalker. You had the dying wish in life. You should pray to meet God and be like Him. And the rest of the Bible will tell you that the only way to know this God, to be brought into relationship with Him, to be redeemed, not simply from a human oppressor, to be redeemed from Satan, our ultimate enemy, who hoodwinks the world into rebellion against God. The only way to be redeemed from our sins that separate us from the Holy God is through Jesus Christ, the second Moses, the one who will come to offer up his life for us. For he is everything rolled into one. He is prophet, his priests and his king. In our recent study from 1 Peter, this opening verses of Exodus 19 is used by Peter the Apostle to apply to both Jews and Gentiles who humbly believe in Jesus as the living stone, singular living stone. And on him, the singular living stone is the cornerstone where the temple of God is being built up as a holy priesthood. But if we reject Jesus as the living stone and the cornerstone, he will become for us the stumbling stone to damnation and eternal separation from God. There is only one small aperture. There is only one small opening into the holiness of God and into, into eternity is through Jesus and his death on the cross for us. And that's why they could say, recorded in the Gospels, when they met Jesus, when they saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Holy One of God. That's the only way. And so, this week itself, you heard from the press that Andrew led us. Four funerals, three of our founding church, Princep Street, that we must keep in touch with, pray for because so many of them I know personally, and some of the older ones in ARPC know. And so we rejoice with those who rejoice. We cry and mourn with those who suffer loss. I did one this week. It was of a very self-made man. And in the eulogies given by his children and his grandchildren, he's good in so many things, but uh, rather stubborn, right? Rather, rather stubborn very much self-made, and he pushed his children and pushed his grandchildren to succeed in careers, to succeed in business, and whatever they did, he just wanted them to succeed and do their very best and be excellent. He suffered three strokes in his life, and with each stroke, it left him more and more, less and less self-made, and more and more God-dependent, until the final one, Right, left him bedridden. And um, previously, what used to make his day and bright lift his spirits was knowing maybe one of his children or his grandchildren doing well in studies or doing well in careers or doing well in whatever they were doing. But what made his eyes light up in his last months and days was hearing God's word. 
And even if the children and grandchildren came to share how they were succeeding, you could see a blank in his eyes, a disinterest. That's, that's the past. But whenever the word of God was played for him, read to him by his faithful wife, his children, his grandchildren, and after his third stroke, his granddaughter was asking him, right? She's going to university. I used to ask Hong Kong what I should specialize in in medicine in the future. And previously, he used to list those specializations in medicine that would be easy and yet lucrative. That's a very good grandfather. Do the easy ones and the ones that make some money, right? Once after the stroke, when he was lying in bed and couldn't speak that much. And he is very precise and selective with his words. And I asked him the same question. Gong Gong, what should I specialize in, in medicine? And he responded, ask God. Ask God. For a man for most of his life, self-made, ignored God, forgot God. And the end of his life, could say to his granddaughter, ask God. It's a very huge change. Enormous change. Unthinkable change. And sharing one of the children, only God in his sovereignty, only God in his victory to Christ Jesus could wear down the stubbornness of my dad. And now we can see all the pieces so clearly. I don't usually say this, you know. So, as I was requested by the family to go and do the funeral week, I arrived at the house. I got into the entrance, and then that sparked a memory. That months ago this year, I had a dream that I was called to do a funeral week at that house. And I woke to tell Mona this, my wife. And as I stood there, I said, I've been here before. And I told that story to the, to the children and the grandchildren. And all that is part of God's wonderful sovereignty of our lives. The wonderful tapestry. When God wants to save you, when God wants to invite you by grace into the worship of Him, through the exalting of His Son, He will orchestrate all things and nothing is ever wasted to bring you to that point. All that we do here in the RPC, all that we do here as a Protestant church, as a Reformed church, all that we do here is to keep preaching the Bible, preaching Christ, for the worship of God must be on His own terms. And there is only one opening, and that's through the cross. And God calls us to the same thing now that Jesus has come. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to know the seriousness of holiness. As we have begun this in our discipleship groups, the new initiative is please do not end any of our 80 plus 90 discipleship groups by saying we read the word of God. I want you to focus on obedience, not application. And obedience now is nutted down into brothers to brothers and sisters to sisters. That every week while you're on virtually and when we resume physically, break yourselves into groups of two or four, journey together as brothers in Christ, share about the things in which you need to consecrate your eyes and consecrate your hearts and consecrate your singleness so you not be distracted by seductions out there, to be contented that you can be singularly devoted to the Lord and what joy there is to be consecrated as a husband and a wife that I wake up each day and go on my knees and say, Lord, may my eyes look upon no other woman, my heart long for no other woman but Mona, my wife. That's the only way to do fidelity, friends. And help me today to bless my children who I can serve, to bless my elders and my deacons and my pastors. Make me a blessing to the church. You think all this happens by chance? And every week we preach our heart out, we do this ministry because we're just routinely doing things? No, friends. No brothers and sisters in Christ. Behold, our God, Seated on the throne, behold the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. Behold the Holy God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Come and join us in this journey. 
Come and join us in true discipleship, authentic discipleship, as we press the refresh button and never get used to treating God with presumption, never get used to responding to God with impulse, never get used to responding to God out of curiosity. It's all in or nothing. It's 24-7 or nothing. It's Jesus or bust. I invite you to that glorious holy life to Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. In hearing this message of God, in hearing the gospel proclaim, you may want to end this service not by standing, but by going on your knees. Behold our God, our holy God. We thank you and praise you, Heavenly Father, for you are holy. We thank you for your salvation story, your redemption story. And this call to us remains the same, a call to obey, a call to holiness, a call to consider the seriousness the awesomeness of your holiness. We thank you that you have made the worship of you, O holy God, truly possible through Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. To him we turn and we pray for new life. We pray against the dangers, the dangers of presumption, the dangers of impulse, the dangers of curiosity and all those dangers that do not lead to a true 24-7 surrender of our lives to Jesus Christ. By your word and your spirit, may we behold Jesus and exalt him for who he is and glorify you and fulfill your mission. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.